This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and guests about politics. It's Thursday, February 6th. I'm Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker. This week's Iowa caucuses revealed once again that the United States electoral process is broken. During the voting, a smartphone app created by the unfortunately named company Shadow malfunctioned. The backup hotline system also failed, causing the final vote count to be delayed for several days and sowing confusion among voters, Democratic Party leaders, and the presidential candidates. But on Monday night, long before the final results were in, Pete Buttigieg essentially declared himself the winner. So we don't know all the results. But we know by the time it's all said and done, Iowa, you have shocked the nation. Because by all indications, we are going on to New Hampshire victorious. Sue Halpern, a New Yorker contributing writer, joins me to discuss the history of disasters at the voting booth, why they are so hard to fix, and whether the 2020 presidential election can be saved. Sue, welcome to the program. Thank you. So we've now learned that Buttigieg had both financial and personal connections to Shadow and the nonprofit acronym, which launched Shadow, as I understand it, as a spinoff organization a year ago. How true are the accusations that he had a conflict of interest in the Iowa caucuses And is there any evidence that the vote tally was compromised? Well, I think there's no evidence that the vote tally was compromised. I don't think we know that. And I think it's pretty irresponsible of people to suggest that. On the other hand, um, when we talk about conflict of interest um, and we see that the person who is backing the app that, uh, that was being used Um, is married to one of the senior strategists of a candidate, in this case, Pete Buttigieg, when we see that that candidate was spending a fair amount of money um, on software that was developed by that company, it, it leads to the understanding that there's something, you know, untoward about it. It doesn't mean that, you know, people are doing bad things, but it sure doesn't look good. And we're in a position now where... It's really important to be everything, have everything be above board. You know, we spent the last four years mulling over what happened in 2016. And, and, and now, you know, the Democrats come roaring back with this problem, which is that they really don't know how to run elections very well either. And of course, conspiracy theorists on the right are calling the results rigged and saying that there are operatives in the Democratic Party who contracted with Shadow to fix the election, you know, either by stealing it from Sanders or just by causing chaos. Yeah, well, I mean, that's unfortunate that that they were given that lift to to have that kind of uh, rhetoric because uh, you know they were helped by the democratic operatives who who did this and and the fact is that um, it was as I understand it the Iowa Democratic Party who ha- made this contract um, but the real thing that's happening here is that there's a, a small number of political strategists and um, developers and they all talk to each other and it's a very very small world 
so on some level, it's not unusual that, you know, you would have this apparent conflict of interest. On the other hand, it's also not unusual that you would have bad technology being built by people who don't really know what they're doing. So what? tell us just a little bit more about the Shadow app. Why did it fail so spectacularly? Um, first of all, it was built very quickly. Um, it was built so quickly that um, it really wasn't vetted. And one of the problems with it not being vetted was that uh, it turned out that the user interface was basically impossible for people to use. You had to bypass a lot of the normal ways that you would log on to an app. And people who are somewhat tech savvy were having trouble getting on because of the way it was built. Um, And so you had people not being able to log on to the app. And then, you know, then they tried to call in results and that wasn't working either. So that was one of the problems. And then some of the people who now have have had a little time to look into how this was built have also found some pretty serious uh, security flaws that could have led to hacking, probably didn't. But, you know, the fact that, that this is even a conversation is ridiculous. Sue, could you take us back for a moment to the first... U.S. electoral debacle of the 21st century, which was the 2000 election with those notorious hanging chads in Florida. And that led to the Supreme Court decision in Bush v. Gore. Many Democrats still see that as a stolen election. So what happened and what's been done to address the problem? So during that 2000 election, uh, voters were voting on machines. And this was in Florida. Um, we're voting on the kind of machines that when you pressed the candidate that you wanted, it kind of punched a hole in the ballot. But one of the problems was that if the paper wasn't properly aligned or if the person didn't have a sufficient strength, uh, hand strength, the ballot didn't mark what that voter intended And so we had this situation where a lot of ballots, not just in Florida, but around the country, um, a lot of ballots weren't counted. Something like uh, two million ballots were disqualified in that election. Uh, You know, we went through this whole long recount and there was a lot of evidence that the Republicans in Florida were cheating. And eventually Gore basically gave up and said, "Okay, you won. At that point, people were like, okay, look, the the voting uh, infrastructure that we have is old. We need to replace it. And Congress passed something called the Help America Vote Act. And they allocated about $4 billion for new machines. They also created something called the uh, Election Assistance Commission, which was supposed to be nonpartisan because it had members from both parties on it. but that's not how it worked out. Almost immediately, it became a partisan project, um, particularly of the Republican Party, to make it more difficult for people to vote. Um, so anyhow, the, the, this $4 billion was allocated to the states, and the idea was that all these municipalities were going to use it to buy new machines, new fancy computerized machines. And it turned out that those machines couldn't be audited, they had black box algorithms, and they were made by companies with ties to the Republican Party. You know, immediately you had people saying, wait a minute, um, this is not kosher. And were, were these the machines that resulted in vote flipping? Yeah, I mean, in 2003, so 
right after this money was allocated, Santa Clara, California, which is where uh, Silicon Valley is, um, was about to spend $20 million on touchscreen DRE machines. And thousands of computer scientists, led by a computer scientist at Stanford named David Dill, wrote a petition saying, like, these computers don't have a paper trail. And if you don't have a paper trail, there's no way to audit them. And if there's no way to audit them, there's no way to know if someone had programmed the machines to flip votes. Um, so this was at the very beginning of when these machines were, were being sent around to the country. And everyone was you know, very excited about the fact that we were voting on computers. But the people who knew the best, which were the computer scientists, said, this is crazy. This is not a good idea. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus. You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis with a virus, but somehow that's, that's where we are. Susan Glasser, this week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. For the past, what, 20 years, Republicans have engaged in you know, really persistent, renewed efforts to suppress the vote, you know, with restrictive voter ID laws, polling place closures, striking names from the voting rolls, redrawing districts, you name it. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, in 19, I think 1980, a Republican operative named Paul Weirich, who was the mastermind, I think, behind the moral majority and for ALEC, um, gave a talk to a conservative group, I think a, a, an evangelical group. And basically he said that um, our leverage, so the leverage of the evangelicals and the, and the Republicans, goes up when the voting populace goes down. So the Republicans took this to heart, you know, um, and so they've instituted so many rules um, to make it harder. And they got a tremendous assist in 2013 when um, the Supreme Court, led by John Roberts, basically overturned a very significant part of the Voting Rights Act, which was something called Section 5. And Section 5 was uh, part of the law that allowed the Department of Justice to intervene uh, when states that had a history of voter suppression, particularly against African-Americans, tried to change the voting rules. Um, John Roberts did not like that section. Um, it overturned Section 5. And almost immediately, states began to institute these draconian voter ID laws. They are uh, primarily targeting Poor people uh, and people of color, people who do not have IDs, so also students. And now I can't, I can't remember quite the number of states that have these rules, but it's significant. It's, I think it's in the 30s. So Georgia is a, a prime case of all of these problems. Tell us about the contested midterm election in 2018 between Brian Kemp, who was Secretary of State at the time, and Stacey Abrams, the former minority leader of the State House of Representatives. Yeah, I want to. I think we should start in Georgia a little bit before that sure. happened, because it, 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 Georgia is 
it's like ground zero for the awful things that happen in elections. In 2003, an election integrity activist named Bev Harris um, was poking around and found that so much of the Georgia election system was sitting unsecured on servers on the internet. And computer scientists said, huh, that makes it very, very easy to insert malicious code into it. Fast forward to 2016, and a, another guy, a guy named Logan Lamb, was poking around and found so much unsecured uh, voter data, and he also found passwords for the election system. Brian Kemp, at that point, was the Secretary of State of Georgia, and he said, Our, we're fine, our system is fine, and then Brian Kemp decides he's, he's going to run for governor um, while he's Secretary of State. So basically, the same person who's overseeing his own election is Brian Kemp. He's running against Stacey Abrams, an African-American woman with a f pretty big following, um, who's also very invested in getting more and more people to vote. Brian Kemp has at his disposal these draconian laws that are tossing people off the voting rolls for the most insignificant distinctions between, say, their name on their uh, ID. So maybe you know it's Dorothy J. Wickenden on your on your license, and you go to vote, and it doesn't have the J. And then they say, "Sorry, you can't vote." And Brian Kemp is you know the poster person for this effort, but it happens in, in lots of other states. Wisconsin is a, is a big one. And, and Stacey Abrams did dispute the results. And in this case, were there uh, hand-marked ballots as a, as a backup? No, no, because Georgia voted exclusively in every district on these DRE machines that have no ability to be audited. You know, so here we are. The voting system has generally, as you've been outlining, has generally gotten worse, not better, since the 2000 election. What do you regard now as the bigger threat, outside interference or these domestic snafus and systematic voter suppression? I think, you know, I th they all work together. I don't know if you could say there's one that's worse than the other. We have new machines coming online, huge numbers of new machines coming online that the voting machine vendors have claimed sort of fix the problem of no paper trail because they spit out a piece of paper after you voted on your screen. The problem is that in places like Georgia, what they spit out is a barcode. So most humans can't read barcodes. So again, you, you think you know what you'd you said when you voted, but you don't know what the barcode says. You know, that that's problematic. Um, any foreign government can decide that they want to poke around in our election systems, clearly. One of the things that we learned from the last time around is that a lot of voter registration databases sit on Secretary of State's um, servers, and a lot of those are not well defended. You know, all you have to do is mess with that. People show up to vote, and if it says, you know, that you didn't vote in the last three elections because someone managed to, you know, remove your history, um, and you show up and say, no, I did, there's no way for you to prove it. You know, we're, we're in a big mess, 
um, and we have no leadership in Washington that is able to push through any kind of election security. It's not anything that's going to solve any of these problems. I was hoping to end on a somewhat (laughs) – to give listeners some reason for optimism here. Is there any silver lining here? Yeah. I mean, I think think one of the things that happened after 2016 was that the cries in the wilderness of the election integrity advocates and the computer scientists um, have now been heard. And people are much, much more – aware of some of these problems. There have been a significant number of lawsuits challenging voter ID laws. Uh, You know, we've got some really good uh, folks in Washington. Ron Wyden is one of them, Jamie Raskin, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, who are really pushing very hard even against this tide. Um, and and, And even if they don't get as far as we need them to get, we're listening to them and we're hearing them. And I think, you know, things don't change unless you've got enough people thinking about these things and advocating for these things. So I think in that sense, you know, we're in a better position because we know so much more than we knew even four years ago. Thank you so much, Sue. You are welcome. Sue Halpern, a contributing writer who covers politics and technology, has been writing for The New Yorker since 2005 and is the author of seven books, most recently, Summer Hours at the Robbers Library. This has been The Political Scene. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on newyorker.com. Feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Russell Gillespie. This program was produced by Alex Barron and Kylie Warner for NewYorker.com. I'm Dorothy Wickenden.